why am I me and not somebody else? What happens when I die? Where was I before I was born? These questions can develop into slightly more sophisticated ones like, do I have free will? And ultimately, how is it that conscious experience is possible? How is it that this mess of wetware we have inside our skulls gives rise to experience? The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Produced by Soapbox Media. The world needs evidence-based public policy now more than ever. Making the right decisions should not be partisan politics. Please help spread the rational view by going to patron.podbean.com slash the rational view. Together, we can make a better future. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. In this episode, I'm going to be returning to a topic that I've been uh, looking at last year, that of consciousness and awareness. I've got a special guest today who is an expert on investigating our conscious mind, an author. Um, I think you're really going to like it. If you do like what you're hearing, please press like on your podcast app, share it with your friends. And I would also love to see you on our Facebook group, The Rational View. We can discuss your thoughts on this episode. Anil Seth is a neuroscientist, author, and public speaker who has pioneered research into the brain basis of consciousness for more than 20 years. His mission is to advance the science of consciousness and to use its insights for the benefits of society, technology, and medicine. He is professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex, co-director of the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research Program on Brain, Mind, and Consciousness, and editor-in-chief of the academic journal Neuroscience of Consciousness. His two TED Talks have been viewed more than 13 million times. He's appeared in several films and is a lead scientist on the Dream Machine Project. His new book, Being You, A Science of Consciousness, was an instant Sunday Times bestseller and a 2021 book of the year. Dr. Seth, welcome to The Rational View. Thanks, Al. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Your your bio is very diverse. 13 million views of your two TED Talks. Films even. What what films have you appeared in? Oh, um, only one, I would say, is a, is a proper film. I've, it's, uh, it's called The Most Unknown. It was a documentary about scientists addressing big questions. And consciousness is one of those big questions. It's still one of those big mysteries. But there were nine of us all together. And it was a very fascinating um, proposal for the film. We, we kind of met in a daisy chain. So I went to visit, in my case, it was a primatologist called Laurie Santos on, on, a, on an island near Puerto Rico and learned about her work with, uh, with monkeys, with macaque monkeys over there. And then at Sussex in the south of England, where I'm based, I was visited by a physicist who develops very accurate clocks, atomic clocks. And he came to sort of have a look around our lab and and find out what things we had in common and how we thought about some of the some issues from very different perspectives. And of course, time is key to consciousness as well, just as it is to how clocks work. Interesting. That's very cool. Sounds like a fun project. So uh, maybe you could tell a, 
tell us all a little bit, just a little bit about yourself and how you became uh, interested in consciousness and, you know, what was your career path and, and how did you get to where you are now? <laughs> I think that there's an easy part to that, which is the interest in consciousness for me. And I think for a lot of people, it's, it's always been interesting. I think it's one of those things that when you're a child, at some point, these questions surface. Why am I me and not somebody else? What happens when I die? Where was I before I was born? And then they can, these questions can develop into slightly more sophisticated ones like, do I have free will? And ultimately, how is it that conscious experience is possible? How is it that this mess of wetware we have inside our skulls gives rise to experience? Why doesn't it all just unfold in the subjective dark like other machines seem to do? So these questions for me came about very early, but at school and even at university, it seemed to me that we were being educated out of asking these questions. They didn't form part of a curriculum. They weren't, there wasn't a degree program in, in consciousness. And, and so I also, you know, I started doing other things. It was, I was, I did my undergraduate degree in physics and finished it in psychology and then did a PhD masters in computer science and artificial intelligence. But this this core interest in consciousness somehow never went away. And I was always reading around the subject and always thought that there might be a way to get back to it. And through good timing or good luck, consciousness research, which had been really out on the fringes of psychology and, and neuroscience, um, of, of science in general for most of the 20th century, was beginning to come back into favour at the end of that century and the start of this one which was around the time I was finishing my PhD. And, and so it was, it was very fortunate because I was able to get a postdoc job in San Diego in California, uh, working for a guy called Gerald Edelman, who was one of these guys. He'd won his Nobel Prize at a very early age and, and used his, his kind of capital to then say, now I'm going to solve consciousness and I've won a Nobel Prize so I can do that. And Francis Crick, who who's much the same, much better known, Francis Crick, of course, co-discoverer of the structure of DNA with, with Rosalind Franklin, Jim Watson. He was over the road at the Salk Institute. Also, you know, he got his Nobel in his pocket. And so he was saying, now consciousness is the next big thing. So these guys gave this new field, or this very old field, really, but it gave this very old field a new legitimacy. And so for my postdoc years, 20 years ago, uh, I was starting to get involved in this resurgent science of consciousness. And um, I came back to Sussex University where I did my PhD. I came back for a faculty position in 2006. And I've been here ever since setting up a, a lab and pursuing this wonderful, wonderfully interesting topic. So it all makes sense in hindsight. It never, I mean, I didn't have a plan <laughs> to do this. It was, it's, it's just, it all makes sense looking backwards, which is always the case in life. Yeah. You, you expect to go into university and tackle these tough questions right off the bat, but it's really a training program to give you the tools to, to take yourself into the path of research that you want to take. So I, I also, you know, was expecting to be tackling big questions of how and why, and it's like, nope, this is, these are the tools to to turn a crank and calculate numbers. <laughs> so you've done a lot of work uh, uh, and been very successful in your career. Now you, you have a model of consciousness that you uh, espouse based on predictive processing. 
Uh, I've done a little bit of background reading on, on, on what you do. Um, you know, my own thinking on what our brains are doing would certainly align with that hypothesis. Uh, it seems like we build models of the world in our brains that help us make a prediction. That's what thinking seems to be doing. We, we see a ball being thrown up in the air and we predict where to put our hands to catch it. Uh, could you maybe briefly outline your thinking on what our consciousness is and what it's doing? I'll try to do it quite briefly. It's, it's, uh, it's a rich topic. I mean, consciousness for me, firstly, you have to start with a very brief and rough definition. And consciousness, it's not just thinking. It's not the conscious thoughts that we have. Consciousness is any kind of experience whatsoever. You know, you, you open your eyes in the morning and there's a world. A world appears and you within it. These are elements of consciousness, the redness of red, the, the pang of jealousy. Um, and of course, the, the thought about what you're going to do today and memories of last year. And these, these are all elements of consciousness too. But really, consciousness is any kind of subjective experience whatsoever. It's what goes away when you go into general anesthesia, comes back when you come around again. And in my work, instead of trying to find some sort of special source that is this magic ingredient that generates consciousness from something else, from the activity of neurons or whatever it might be. My strategy has been to accept that consciousness exists, and we know that it's intimately related to brains and bodies, abundant evidence that there's this very, very close link. And instead of treating consciousness as this single big scary mystery, think about the different properties that consciousness has and try and explain each of those through this idea of the brain as a prediction machine. Um, so this is like dissolving the problem of consciousness rather than solving it, in, in much the same way that in the history of biology, people didn't find the spark of life. You know, they, they looked at living systems, wrote down what properties living systems have, and then tried to understand how those related to the underlying physics and chemistry. And, and so the problem of life became less of a mystery through this process. And so that's the, that's the strategy. Recognize that there might still be a big mystery at the end of the day, but let's try and let's try and just explain the different properties. And the language of predictive processing, this idea that the brain is a prediction machine, is a very potent way of going about this. It provides a very rich language for mapping what's happening in the brain to what's happening in our conscious experiences. And the core idea here is that pretty much everything the brain is doing is testing its predictions against sensory data coming from the world or the body. When we open our eyes and experience a visual scene, like a sunset or just looking across the road at the houses on the other side, there's information, well, there are signals coming into our brains through our retinas in our, in our eyes. But these signals, they don't come with labels on about where they're coming from. They're just signals that, that end up in the brain as electrical energy without colors, without shapes. And so the brain has to make sense of this inherently ambiguous and unlabeled information. And it's tempting to think the brain just reads it out. You know, there's a real world out there that has properties like color and shape and so on. The brain just reads it out. But the prediction machine view suggests very differently that the brain is making its best guess of what's out there. And it's using sensory signals to calibrate its best guesses. And what we consciously experience is not a readout of the sensory data, it's the content of the brain's predictions 
that best account for the sensory data that comes in. And what I've tried to do in my work and what I try to do in the book is walk through a story of how this simple idea, which has a long history, goes back as far as the ancient Greeks and psychology to Hermann von Helmholtz in the 19th century, walk through how this old idea that's been kind of supercharged by modern neuroscience and machine learning um, to show how it can account for all the different kinds of experiences that come under this umbrella of consciousness, not just the experience of looking at a sunset, but the experience of being who you are, the experience of free will. And then also to think about what implications this has for how we think about consciousness beyond the human, you know, in other animals or in machines or AI systems or neurotechnologies and so on. No, I, I really like that approach. I think, you know, pushing the boundaries of what we know, working, you know, where the light falls and where we can push back on the boundaries of our uncertainty, help us to ask better questions about the thing. And I think, you know, 90% of science is asking the right questions because a lot of the questions I think that we ask about consciousness just won't make sense once we understand what's happening uh, in, in better detail. And, you know, uh, exploring consciousness by learning about why it goes away is a good one. I had a, an interview with uh, a great interview with Dr. Luca Turin, who is doing electron spin resonance measurements on animals going under anesthesia and, you know, looking at what happens when consciousness goes away, because there's a, a diversity of, of ways that consciousness can be disrupted or, or changed. And that leads me into something that you've uh, been, you've done and talked about on the internet. You actually took uh, psychedelic drugs in the name of science research to to look at the impacts on your consciousness. Um, as as an aside, I would love to have you write my next research grant for me, please. <laughs> but uh, tell me, I have to just, I have to say I have to disappoint you by saying, it, although I did have a scientific interest, it was not it was not a project that was funded by any research grant. That that was that was kind of that was like you know an on the side exploration. But yeah, I, when I, I I didn't take psychedelics when I was young, so it it, it was an experience that I entered into partly um, for to understand what if it, personal effect it might have on me. You know, there's lots of reports of, of you know how people feel differently after and how it might help deal with with challenges in life and so on. But also, of course, yeah, with with my hat on as some as a neuroscientist interested in consciousness, you've got this remarkable opportunity here. You take. You take a, a, a simple chemical, ingest a simple chemical, and we know where it binds in the brain, and it's it's not that's not that complicated. Yet your conscious experience changes dramatically, and so there's a there's an opportunity here to understand. Okay, what's happening in the brain as a result of this pharmacological intervention that leads to all these radical changes, and I think that can that can help us take a, a, a richer perspective on everyday consciousness. And one of the keys, I think, of understanding consciousness is it's too easy to take it for granted. You know, we open our eyes and there's the world, and I feel like I'm the same self, more or less, every day. But it's not to be taken for granted. It's, it's, an, it's an everyday miracle that's dependent on such a rich complexity of neural machinery inside the brain and, and the body. And the more we can bed in the idea that consciousness is this wonderfully wonderful creation of the brain, the body, and the world, 
um, firstly, it means we, we value our everyday life more. And, and secondly, it means we, we, we have a slightly more objective view on our subjective everyday existence. And, and psychedelics is one way to give you that alternative view on how your everyday experience unfolds. Mm, yeah. I uh, also uh, worked on a long experience with uh, experiment with alcohol and consciousness. Um, no, no conclusions yet. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, some experiments take time. But or tell me what you learned. What, what, how does that, um, how does that experience play into our consciousness? Did, did you, have you helped, has it helped you uh, advance your theories on, on the predictive brain or, or, or on how consciousness arises? It's hard to pin down any single impact that it had. Uh, what it did do was, um, the experiences that, that I had were very compatible with what I thought might happen. But of course, until you have the experience, you don't really know. And the experience is never the same as the description. So you know, one of the things that, that can happen in psychedelic experiences is, is you, your perception of the external world is altered. As things take on different shapes. You, you start having colloquially what are called hallucinations. But of course, there are many different kinds of hallucinations and psychedelic hallucinations are, are of a particular kind. And to me, this sort of makes sense in terms of what we think the brain is doing, what I think the brain is doing when it's doing perception, that it's throwing out these predictions and calibrating them against the world. So if you mess with that fine balance, then you're going to mess with the best guesses the brain is making and you're going to change perception in some quite fundamental ways. And, and the self is also a kind of perception, in my view. The self is not the thing that does the perceiving. It's another set of predictions the brain is making about the body. And so psychedelics can also disrupt how the experience of selfhood unfolds over time. So, I, I mean, one thing that I've always found fascinating about is talking to other people and what conclusions they draw from a psychedelic experience. It's fascinating. So some people will say, okay, I, the, the blinders have come off my, my senses and my eyes and my ears, and I've seen through to a deeper reality. And for these people, psychedelic experience can sort of reinforce the view that there's something fundamentally immaterial about consciousness, that it can float free of the brain and body, and, and psychedelics provides a kind of vision into that, that deeper truth. Um, I tended mm -hmm. to take absolutely the opposite message from it, which is that the fact that you can ingest this chemical and your experience changes so radically is, for me, very, very supportive of the idea that consciousness is fundamentally a materialistic phenomenon. You change the brain and your conscious experience changes. And I think the difference between these two conclusions is, is whether you take the content of your experience to be an insight into the structure of the universe. And I tend always to push back against that you know, with a simple slogan that says, how things seem is not how they are. And we know this is true anyway, like colors that seem to be a property of the world are a property of the world and the brain put together. Different people see different colors, different animals see different colors. There's just electromagnetic radiation out there and the brain creates colors out of this in specific ways. So even though it seems like color exists in a mind-independent way, it really doesn't. 
in the same way people that have out of body experiences they have the experience that that their first person perspective leaves their body does this mean that their soul has floated free and drifted off somewhere no to me what it means is that the everyday experience of having a first person perspective is something that the brain is creating and that can be disrupted by intervening in the brain's activity and the same thing goes with psychedelics even though it might seem you're sort of seeing the true structure of the universe if you take enough that's not true that's just that's just revealing that the everyday experience we have of the world is itself a kind of construction so in some ways there's 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 something everybody agrees on which is it does reveal that our everyday experience is filtered you know, we see only part of what's there that's true but i don't think psychedelics sort of takes the filters off and gives us a deeper truth it, it just gives us a different way of experiencing what's out there and the interesting thing for me is it's it 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 just sheds a bit of light on on this process that we otherwise take for granted yes yes that's, that's a very very interesting insights in, into the thoughts and there really are two camps there's the the camp of people that believe that it's uh consciousness arises purely as a functioning of this neural network and it's just a very complex processing uh model or, or you know and it can be simulated and it's just a mechanistic computational thing that are that is emergent from this complex processing and then there's the other camp who say no no consciousness is a universal uh thing and we're just tapping into this universal mind in some way there's quantum mechanics and there's you know they wave their hands and whatever word they want to use to hide it is is the source of this and we're just tapping into it somehow and and none of these really i think have gotten to the hard problem of consciousness none of these really give to me a satisfying explanation as to how a first person experiences arises in a, in a body um so i think the jury is still out on that one. But, um, do you have any uh, pref preferred um, explanation as to how this first-person experience comes about from the complexity of a brain? Yeah, I mean, in terms of those two options, I tend to side more with the former. You know, I agree that there's no satisfactory consensus answer yet, but to me, it depends on the rate of progress that you can make from these two different approaches. So let's take this idea that consciousness is universal. It's everywhere. This sort of so-called panpsychist view of consciousness is everywhere or variations of that, that, you know, the brain might be some antenna that tunes in to, to consciousness. Now, the question to ask for these perspectives is what does it help us understand about how consciousness unfolds for us and for other creatures? If you look in the brain, it doesn't really seem to be doing anything much like an antenna for some, something else that we can't even, even measure. Um, we don't really get a handle on why different experiences are the way they are, why anesthesia works, or um, any of these other questions that, that are actually addressable um, in laboratories and in everyday life and for which we have data. It doesn't really help us explain anything to suggest. It may still be true, but it's not going to get us very far by taking that perspective. Taking the other view, and again, I don't, I don't think it's necessary to take it to the extreme and just say consciousness is just computations among neurons. Now, that to me is almost certainly false as well. And it's partly because 
people tend to say things like, and I think you said it actually, but, you know, consciousness is merely, it's just stuff happening in neurons, just an emergent property, just information processing. And the use of the word just there is very telling. I mean, these things can do a lot. The resources of materialistic explanation are immense and are growing more apparent all the time as we learn, for instance, to record from more neurons, to, to, to construct computational models that are based on ideas like the brain as a prediction machine. Um, that can take all these resources that have been so successful in the rest of science as well and apply them to this question of consciousness. And I think you, you make more progress that way. Um, and some things you might jettison. So the idea that, that consciousness is some kind of information processing, I think probably is, is shortly to be deprecated. I think it's that useful. Information processing for me is a rather tired metaphor, which rests on the false notion that the brain is a kind of computer. And you have to ask, like, information processing carries with it all sorts of embedded assumptions about what kind of system the brain is. And if you take that and run with it, then information processing has limits on the kinds of things you can explain. So I think we need to be careful not to unwittingly constrain ourselves within particular assumptions about what materialism can do for us. You know, the brain is more than a computer. It's a chemical machine as well. It's a living system. These things can do more than simply process information. Um, so you mentioned a hard problem of consciousness, which is the, the philosopher David Chalmers' famous articulation of this basic sense of mystery of how and why a physical system could give rise to any kind of conscious experience whatsoever. And so I tend to resist the premise of this whole thing, that that's consciousness treated as the single big scary mystery for which we may not be ready to find the right answer. There may not be an answer. Physicists still haven't told us why the universe exists, um, but they've done a fantastic job of accounting for its properties, making predictions that hold up. And if we can do those things for consciousness, we don't have to treat it as this big single mystery. We treat it, as I mentioned, like biologists a hundred years ago were thinking about life, not as a single perplexing phenomenon, which it was thought of at the time. You know, at the time, the mystery of life was almost as, as vivid as the mystery of consciousness. Like, how is it possible that some stuff can have this property of being alive and other stuff can't? And we, we now think that with respect to consciousness. So my bet is if we focus on developing explanations of properties of consciousness, like the first person perspective, like what a self means, like what is a perception of free will, like then little by little, the apparent hardness of the hard problem will, will fade away. And maybe, maybe it will just dissolve in a puff of metaphysical smoke eventually. That's, that's um, a good, a good way to do it. And, and certainly um, I, I agree with your, your statement that this is really the only way we can make progress other than uh, by making uh, fiat assumptions about the universe. Um, there have been some, theories put forward by you know by panpsychists about you know like penrose's theory of, of quantum gravity or something like that but it doesn't it doesn't really address consciousness at all at this point um whereas i think you know chipping away at the boundaries of of you know we know consciousness is doing this or we know that this chemical interrupts consciousness i think that definitely is 
is the best way to go and, and where we're getting really exciting results uh, from some experiments like, like Dr. Turin's, for example, on the electron spin resonance in fruit flies under anesthesia. Um, so yeah, I like that approach, but I want to challenge you just a little bit on, on your, on your saying that, you know, and I think you've said this before, you believe that AI, artificial intelligence is unlikely to develop consciousness, that it's more than just processing, but you know, there are theories out there that say that any sort of physical, uh, activity can be simulated in a computer. And so even if it is, uh, processing plus chemicals, you can still simulate this in a, in a computer to an arbitrary degree of accuracy. So, you know, what else is there that makes it unlikely that an AI would develop consciousness? Is it just that our current neural net AIs are too simplistic? Uh, and maybe, you know, as we learn more then potentially long time down the road, this could become something that we could put into a machine. I don't think it's as simple as that. Um, it relates a little bit to what we were talking about a moment ago about the limits of metaphors like information processing. If you think that consciousness is simply a form of information processing, then by definition, it's something that in principle a computer could have because computers process information. That's, that's what they do. And so for some people, it's almost, it's just a, it's just clear, right? There's not even a question here. You just get the program right. Maybe you need to wait for the next generation of, of neural networks or chat GPT-58 or whatever it will be. <laughs> but eventually you'll get there. It's just more sophisticated information processing. And I resist that because I'm not convinced that consciousness is solely a matter of information processing. Uh, it's that, that To say that is to make a very specific claim about what brains do and what consciousness may may consist in information processing typically uh still requires you know somebody to interpret that information the classic use of information in this context goes right back to claude shannon where you've got a signal and a receiver and you and you're trying to maximize the the error-free uh transmission of a signal across across a channel and that's what a lot of information theory is based on that's kind of the assumptions that are baked into how our, our computer hardware works. Um, we can always simulate any system using computers. So we can use information processing as human observers to simulate anything. That, that's certainly true. And there may, be, there may well be some aspects of human cognition which are well described as, as information processing. But it doesn't mean it all is, and it certainly doesn't mean that consciousness is. I think you hit the nail on the head by saying, in principle, you can simulate anything, any physical process you can, you can simulate if you have a fast enough, large enough computer. This is also true. But the key question to ask is, is consciousness the kind of thing for which simulation is the same as instantiation? Which is to say, does simulating it bring it about? And for some things in the universe, this is the case. This is true. If you have a computer that's playing chess, it actually is playing chess. And you play against it, it will beat you. It's playing, it's playing a different chess in a different way, but it's still playing chess. But there are other things that if you simulate them, you never actually instantiate the thing you're simulating. The classic example here is 
a weather system. You have all these fancy supercomputers simulating weather systems, which is why weather forecasts have got so much better. But no one even thinks that it actually gets wet or windy inside a computer simulating a storm. It's just a simulation. So is consciousness more like chess or is it more like the weather? And I tend to think, well, I certainly think there's no good reason to believe it's it's like chess. I don't think we can exclude that it's like the weather in this sense. I think there's good reasons to think that consciousness does depend on the stuff that brains and bodies are made out of. Um, and there are, there are reasons for this. There's reasons that that this idea of the brain as a prediction machine actually is very, very intimately related to our nature as living organisms. The reason why brains make predictions all the time, in my view, is because brains evolve to control and regulate the living body. Predictions is a very good way of doing this. And this applies all the way down. It applies down to the level of individual cells even that have to keep themselves going. So there's no, in, in, in living systems, there's no clear divide between the mindware and the wetware as you have in a computer between the hardware and the software. So where does the simulation even stop? You know, you start simulating individual molecules within cells. Sure, you can do that, but, but that then is not the thing itself. You have things like metabolism. That's not, if you simulate it, it's not actually metabolism. It's a simulation of it. So my reluctance to jump on the bandwagon of the imminence of artificial consciousness is motivated, I think, by resisting what I see as an unwarranted assumption that consciousness is just a matter of information processing and it's and that simulation is sufficient to bring it about. And I, I just don't see that those two things are well supported. It's a, a difficult question, and it makes my brain hurt to think about it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, and and there is constant controversy on this point between the uh, supporters of the AI consciousness uh, group and the uh, wetware group, I guess, as, as I'll call them. And I have interviewed some people that are of that opinion that you know it's something that you need to actually have the processes happening in this universe to 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 go about. My thinking is is maybe more along the lines of, you know, yes, you can simulate anything that happens. So within that simulation, you will be producing outputs consistent with an intelligence at some point. But the complexity of that process may be beyond the capabilities of, of a system. And then people will start talking about quantum mechanical computers versus classical computers. And, you know, there are things that classical computers don't do that will happen in reality and then maybe this level of detail is what needs to be discussed and and then then it becomes much more difficult than i can follow um so a great discussion about you know where this comes from and what are the key requirements and i think we're just not ready to ask that question at this state in our knowledge i mean there's there's one other thing just to throw into this mix while we're talking on this subject is i think another thing that drives the idea that artificial consciousness is on the way as a sort of extension of AI is a confusion between intelligence and consciousness. And there's another idea which, which is quite commonly heard, which is that in AI, once a system reaches a certain threshold of intelligence, which is often thought to be general AI or human level or superhuman level intelligence, 
that's when consciousness comes online. Suddenly the lights come on for the system and, and it becomes aware. Uh, or maybe it's going to take more than that, or maybe it's less than that. But to think of consciousness as a function of intelligence, I think, is also misguided. Right? We, and it, it comes from uh, a latent human exceptionalism where we think we're super, really intelligent compared to other creatures and we know we're conscious. So we tend to think the two things go together. Now, it's true that intelligence gives us specific ways of being conscious, like for people that have the cognitive capability to imagine the future and remember the past, there are distinctive experiences that go along with that. But you don't, at least in my view, consciousness and intelligence are rather independent. They're rather orthogonal. You can imagine a creature that maybe has very vivid perceptual experiences of the here and now and of pain, suffering, or pleasure, but is not very smart by our you know, um, self-aggrandizing human uh, benchmarks of, of intelligence. So just making systems smarter doesn't mean that consciousness comes along for the right. And I think that, again, just makes us a bit more cautious about these claims that AI... But what will happen, just sorry, to, to, to maybe uh, close this loop, is that we may well get machines that give us the very powerful impression of being conscious. Perhaps even the impression that we can't see through in the same way that we can't see through certain optical illusions. Now, however much we know that two lines might be different lengths, they will look the same for, for the Muller-Lyer illusion, for instance. And I think that is going to be itself very disruptive, independently of the question of whether these systems really are conscious, which I would say is probably either undecidable or not. But when we live in a world where there are machines that we just can't help attributing conscious status to, this is going to wreak havoc. Well, I don't know if it's going to wreak havoc. It's certainly going to pose challenges to how our society works. If we start caring more about our you know, our virtual assistants, you know, this happened. This is, of course, these ideas have been beautifully explored in science fiction. There's Spike Jones' movie, Her, which talks about this uh, you know, very, very well indeed. But I think that will be problematic, and I think that's coming. And, you know, already the chatbots are getting better, although they're still pretty easy to catch out, and they're disembodied, and you know, th there's many things they still lack. But I think that's a, that's a very plausible um, threshold that we might cross because it's a threshold that depends on a certain human gullibility, our, our anthropomorphic tendency to attribute human-like properties to things that behave in particular ways. And so, you know, let's see what happens with that. But there needs to be, in my view, an ethical discussion around simply that question, let alone the question of real artificial consciousness. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Like just looking at, at chat GPT and the, these emerging AIs and I'm I'm gobsmacked by how well they do. Um, the Turing test was defined as the way to define to determine whether something is intelligent or or I don't know if it was to do if something is sentient or not, but definitely this is our best test to determine intelligence and these things pass. I mean these things have, have written bar exams for, for MBAs and passed. It appears that they're thinking. It appears that they're doing the things that we associate with first-person thinking and without a conscious um, experience. So, you know, these are your, your philosophical zombies, 
that that are intelligent yet not necessarily present and that that begs the question of maybe intelligence or or consciousness is some sort of an illusion that you know maybe they're doing they're set up to do the same things that we're doing in our brains with neural networks maybe our experience is some sort of illusion and that we have no control over what we're doing and and we're just a lot consciousness is something that came about through evolution and is along for the ride with this neural net uh so there's a lot of interesting speculation Absolutely. And I mean, I, I'm less persuaded by the current crop of chatbots. I think they're still relatively easy to catch out. I think um, once you understand what they're doing, it's fairly clear that they're not doing anything particularly surprising and that it doesn't necessarily, to me, it doesn't, it doesn't give me the impression that they're thinking. It gives me the impression there's a very, very sophisticated um, statistical prediction algorithm churning away in the background that's trained on most of the text that's ever been written. But it's, it's, it's precisely the chatbot's inability to actually follow laws of reasoning that is one of the things that gives it away. It, it, it's still just predicting word sequences. And sometimes these word sequences align with laws of rationality and principles of reasoning, but, for, but quite often they don't. And what you get is some superficially compelling but fundamentally, totally garbled nonsense. Uh, but that that may well that may well change. Uh, and again, though, it's even if they do pass the Turing test, of course, yeah, it's in a test of intelligence. But as many people have said before, in practice, it's really a test of human gullibility rather than machine intelligence. And yeah, we humans keep passing this test of gullibility because we, we get persuaded. <laughs> Yes, indeed. And even engineers at Google um, have been persuaded uh, by their creations. But I, I want to um, move on. That's been a great discussion. And, and I, I want to move on a little bit to uh, another topic that um, I saw in your resume. You, you said you're the, the lead scientist on the Dream Machine Project. What is the Dream Machine Project? Uh, this has been one of the most interesting and rewarding things I've, I've ever done. It, um, the, the dream machine, it was invented about 60 years ago by an artist called Brian Geisen, who was a beat generation artist. And one day in the south of France, he was on a bus and the sun was shining low through a stand of trees and it gave rise to this flickering light, sort of stroboscopic phenomenon. And he was dozing, his eyes were closed. And all of a sudden he had these intense visual hallucinations explosions of colour and shape in his mind. And as soon as the bus left the stand of trees and the lights stopped flickering, the hallucination stopped. And Geisen wanted to understand what was going on here and make a, an artwork that would regenerate this experience for other people. And he discovered the work of uh, William Gray Walter, a pioneering British neuroscientist, who in the 1950s had done the first experiments on stroboscopic light, experienced by people with closed eyes, again showing they had these visual hallucinations and he was recording from their brain, see what's going on. And so they have this phenomenon of stroboscopically induced visual hallucination. It turns out pretty much everyone has these experiences when they're exposed to this kind of stimulation. And Geisen made his dream machine in the, in the late 50s, 60s, and it never really took off. It remained a fringe art object. And about 10 years ago in my lab, we started working on this phenomenon purely out of neuroscientific interest. You know, you do something to the brain and you have an experience of an interesting kind. It's a great 
um, way into consciousness, a little bit like psychedelics, but a different manipulation here. Um, and then about just before the pandemic was kicking off, I was contacted by a, a woman called Jennifer Crook, who's an arts producer, who had the idea of reinventing Geisen's dream machine for the 21st century. And that's what we did. So last year in the UK, in a collaboration between scientists, philosophers, musicians, we had the electronic musician John Hopkins on the team. We had Turner Prize winning architects assemble. We built new dream machines that people could experience as groups. So groups of 20 or 30 would go into the specially designed space. We installed it in a church in Belfast and an ice rink in Edinburgh in a public market in London. They would go in, take their shoes off, sit down, be guided through a, about a half hour of stroboscopic stimulation with this musical accompaniment with 82 speakers around the, the space and have all these wonderful experiences. And, and then they would come out and there would be a reflection zone where they would talk about what they experienced, write about it, draw pictures about it, fill in surveys. So we've got a ton of data because we had, in the end, 35,000 people roughly come through the Dream Machine last year in four cities over the summer. Wow. Uh, and, and for me, this was a wonderful happening, really, because pretty much everyone that came through came out with a newfound appreciation of the power of their own brain and mind. You know, they would like, what just happened? Like, this stuff, my brain can do this? Because all that's happening on the outside is, is flickering white light, yet people experience some of the most vivid, beautiful, deep colors they've ever experienced. And to just loop back to an earlier part of our conversation, it's a brilliant way of preventing people from taking for granted the everyday miracle of being conscious when they go through something like this, especially if it's presented and framed in the right way. And so, of course, we try to do that, to frame it, to to kindle this, this curiosity about their own minds and, and brains. So that was a dream machine. I think it was, a, it was a wonderful collaboration. A lot of art science collaborations end up being a little bit superficial, but this was really bedded in. You know, we had to understand how the system works, how to make it safe, how to frame it, how to, how to just deal with the whole journey, what kind of data we were going to collect and, and, and all this. So it's been, it's been great. And it's, um, I hope we have future plans for it as well, but we, we were running from May to September last year in the UK and it's currently sort of in a state of hopefully temporary hibernation. And what do you, what do you hope to learn from this experiment? What, what's your, give a hypothesis or a, a goal? Yeah. I mean, there's a number of things. So yeah, on the one hand, of course, the goal is um, to just give people this, this unique experience. Um, uh, then there's a, a pedagogical goal to, to kindle their curiosity and hopefully inaugurate a, a new generation of budding philosophers and neuroscientists. But then also there's so much data that we've, we've got. And there's a really interesting question here about what I've come to call perceptual diversity, you know, how we each experience things differently. Now we go about our world and it seems to us that we just see the world as it is. So it's quite hard to, uh, to recognize that somebody else might share the same objective reality, yet have a different experience. Now, in the dream machine, this, it's the same on the outside for everybody. Everybody gets exposed to exactly the same light sequence in exactly the same environment. 
yet. They come out and they'll all have had a different experience. Similar in some ways, colours and shapes. But the details will be different and in some cases, very different. Some people have complex experiences of people and places. Others just see geometric patterns. So I'm very, very interested in how and why people have such different experiences, both in the dream machine, and we've got thousands of data points here now. We People made drawings, and we've got, I think, about 20,000 beautiful drawings of people's experiences that we can now set about analyzing with, with image processing methods. And then another part of the dream machine is this project called the Perception Census, just taking this idea that everybody has different experiences and exploring it in the context of everyday life too. So this is an ongoing project. And if, if any of your listeners were would like to, to help us with this, I mean, I'd be incredibly grateful. It's an online project called The Perception Census. And it's a set of simple experiments, brain teasers, interactive illusions that we've put together to, to measure how different our inner worlds really are. I mean, you can think of it, you remember a few years ago, there was that image of a dress that half the world saw as blue and black and half saw as yellow and gold. And this, this was something that set the internet totally aflame because it was like, people just couldn't believe that somebody else would see it the other way. And so what we've done is we've sort of systematized that to look at a range of different forms of perception, not just color, including color, but not only color, to look at color, our perception of time, sound and music, other aspects of vision, emotion, and so on, to just understand how things are on the inside, because it's very hard to see. We can all tell immediately that we differ on the outside in skin color and height and body shape and so on. And I think society has increasingly embraced this externally visible diversity and recognize that having diversity is essential for a flourishing society. Yet on the inside, we all tend to assume that we see things the same way, unless you're sort of, you describe yourself as having a neurodivergent condition. So it's an old concept of neurodiversity, which is very, very important, but has tended to be associated with specific conditions like autism or, or ADHD ironically reinforcing the idea that if you're not neurodivergent, then you are neurotypical and you see the world as it is. And this, this project is a way to tr both challenge that assumption, which was you know, not what the proponents of neurodiversity intended. You know, they they recognised everybody is different. But we want to like, just rehabilitate that idea that difference is the norm and actually back it up with getting some data. So we've got Already about 20,000 people have taken part in 100 countries. We want to make this the, the biggest ever study of individual differences in perception ever. So this is also very exciting. It's, it's an area that I didn't expect to go into, and it, it really came out of the Dream Machine project. And it's, you know, it's a question that philosophers have asked for forever. Is, is my perception of red the same as your uh, impression of red? Um, and you know, it seems to be something that you just can't ask there. There's no way to tell whether, you know, when we look at a picture, we see the same colors effectively, <laughs> even though they are the same wavelengths hitting our eyes, you know, our rep our internal representation of these could be completely different. And, and how would you know? <laughs> well, I mean, take the census and let's find out because actually, even though you can't address the 
the fundamental philosophical question there because I cannot have your experience. Only you can have your experience. This doesn't mean we're totally unable to address the issue. There are things we can measure. You know, we can, we can, for instance, in colour, we, we can ask people to judge how similar two colours are. And, um, and we can see that different people might make different judgments. There are lots of illusions that play with colour, that, you know, where, where two patches on a cube might be the same colour, but you see them as different because of the way the brain takes shade into account. And, and we can measure that as well because we can then get people to say, okay, what shade do you think? You know, try and match it so that it's the same shade that you see. And then we can see what colour they pick that matches their experience. And we can look across people as well. So I think we don't want to be put off by the fundamental philosophical intractability of having somebody else's or something else's experience. Uh, there are ways. And in the data we've got so far, we haven't looked at it very much, but there's really quite a striking amount of variability. So I would say the red you see is probably not the same red that I see, though it's, it may be quite similar. That that's that's really interesting. This is um, this has been a really cool discussion about uh, a lot of very complex topics, and I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and and chat with me about about some of these ideas because um, really interesting things are happening right now in the field, and uh, I appreciate you uh, pushing back the boundaries uh, with your with your dream machine experiment and with with your professional work as well. Um, really great to talk to you. Thanks thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Al. Really enjoyed talking to you. I'm gonna I'm gonna send you a T-shirt if you'd like uh, of the Rational View, so you can uh, remember your experience here and just just for for taking the time to to talk with us. So thank you so much. Oh, that's very kind of you. No, I've always always open to. It. It looks like a cool T-shirt to you. Thank you for that. All right. Bye bye. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.